Chapter 6 of Regiment of Women. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona. Regiment of Women by Clemens Dane. Chapter 6. Louise was tasting happiness. Happiness was a new and absorbing experience to Louise. The only child of a former marriage, she had grown up among boisterous half-brothers with whom she had little fellowship. Her father, a driving, thriving merchant, was prouder of his second brood of apple-cheeked youngsters than of his first-born, who fitted in with the scheme of life as ill as her mother had done. He had imagined himself in love with his first wife, had married her, piqued by her elusive ways, charmed by her pale, wood-sorrel beauty, and she, shy and unawakened, had taken his six feet of bone and muscle for outward invisible sign of the matured, spiritual strength her nature needed. The disappointment was mutual as swift. It had taken no longer than the honeymoon to convince the one that he had burdened himself with a fanst, the other that she was tied to a philistine. For a year they shared bed and board, severed and inseparable as earth and moon. Then the wife, having passed on to a daughter the heritage of a nature rare and impracticable as a sensitive plant, died and was forgotten. The widower's speedy remarriage proved an unqualified success. Indeed, the worthy man's afterlife was so uniformly and deservedly prosperous, he was as shrewd and industrious in his business as he was genial and domesticated in his home, that he might be forgiven if his affection for his eldest child were tepid. For, apart from her likeness to his first wife, she was, in existing, a constant reminder of the one mistake of a prosperous career. He was kind to her, however, in his fashion, gave her plenty of pocket money, he was fond of giving, saw to it that she had a sufficiency of toys and sweets, though it piqued him that she had never been known to ask for any, otherwise was content to leave her to his wife. The second Mrs. Denny, kindly, capable and unimaginative as her husband, had her sense of duty to her stepdaughter. But she was too much occupied in bearing and rearing her own family, whose numbers were augmented with Victorian regularity, to consider more than the physical well-being of the child. Louise was well-fed and warmly clad. Her share was accorded her in the pleasures of the nursery. What more could a busy woman do? Louise, docile and reserved, was not unhappy. Until she went to school, however, her mental outlook resembled that of a person suffering from myopia. Her elders, her half-brothers, all the persons of her small world, were indefinite figures among whom she moved, confused and blundering. She knew of their existence, but to focus them seemed as impossible as to establish communication. She did not try over hard. She was sensitive to ridicule. It was easier to retire within her childish self be her own confidant and questioner. She had an intricate imagination, and before she learned to read, had created for herself a fantastically complete inner world, in which she moved, absorbed and satisfied. Indeed, her outward surroundings became at last so dangerously shadowy that her manner began to show how entire was her abstraction, and Mrs. Denny, sworn foe to sulks and moping, saw fit to engage a governess as an antidote. The governess, a colorless lady, achieved little, though she was useful in taking the little boys for walks. 
but she taught Louise to read, and thereafter the child assumed entire charge of her own education. The mother's books, velvety with dust that had sifted down upon them since the day, six years back, when they had been tumbled in piles on an attic floor by busy maids, preparing for the advent of the second Mrs. Denny, were discovered, one rainy day, by a pinafored Siegfried, alert for treasure. Contented years were passed in consuming the trove. Her mother's choice of books was so completely to her taste that they gave the lonely child her first experience of mental companionship, suggesting to her that there might be other intelligences in the world about her than the kindly, stolid folk who cherished her growing body and ignored her growing mind. She was almost startled at times to realize how completely this vague mother of hers would have understood her. Each new volume, fanciful or quizzical or gracious, seemed a direct gift from an invisible yet human personality that concerned itself with her as no other had ever done, that was never occupied with the dustiness of the attic or a forgotten tea-hour, but was astonishingly sensitive to the needs of a little soul, struggling unaided to birth. The pile of books, to her hungry affections, became the temple, the veritable dwelling-place of her mother's spirit. Seated on the sun-baked floor, book on knee, the noises of the high road floating up to her, distance dulled and soothing, she would shake her thick hair across her face, and see through its veil a melting, shifting shadow of a hand that helped to turn her pages. The warm floor was a soft lap, the battered trunk a shoulder that supported, the faint breeze a kiss upon her lips. The fantastic qualities the mother had bequeathed recreated her in the mind of her child, bringing vague comfort, who knows, alike to the dead and the living Louise. Yet the impalpable intercourse compact of make-believe and yearnings, was, at its sweetest, no safe substitute for the human companionships that were lacking in the life of Louise. Half-consciously she desired an elder sister, a friend, on whom to lavish the stores of her ardent, reticent nature. At twelve she was sent to school. At first it did little for her. She was unaccustomed to companions of her own age and sex, and quite simply, did not know how to make friends with many who would have been willing enough if she could have contributed her share, the small change of joke and quarrel and confidence towards intimacy. But Louise was too inert to the solitude of crowds to be troubled by her continued loneliness. She met the complaints of Mrs. Denny that she had made no friends like other children with a shrug of resignation. What could she do? She supposed that she was not nice enough. People didn't like her. Secretly, her stepmother agreed. She was kind to Louise, but she, too, did not like her. She found her irritating. Her dreamy, absent manner, her very docility and absence of self-assertion were annoying to a hardy woman who was braced rather than distressed by an occasional battle of wills. She thought her shyness foolish, doubted the insincerity of her humility, and looked upon her shrinking from publicity, noise, and rough caresses, her love of books and solitude, as a morbid pose. Yet she was just a woman and did not let the child guess at her dislike, though she made no pretense of actual affection. She knew perfectly well that Louise's mother, they had been schoolgirls together, had irritated her in exactly the same way. Educationally, too, the first year at school affected Louise but slightly. 
Her brother's governesses had done their best for the shy, intelligent girl, and her wide reading had trained, her awkwardness and childish appearance obscured, a personality in some respects dangerously matured. But her dreaminess and total ignorance of the routine of lesson learning hampered her curiously. She learnt mechanically, using her brain but little for her easy tasks, and she was not considered particularly promising. With Claire's intervention, the world was changed for Louise. She had her first taste of active pleasure. It is difficult to realize what an effect a woman of Claire's temperament must have had on the impressionable child. In her knowledge, her enthusiasms, her delicate intuition and keen intellectual sympathy, she must have seen the embodiment of all dreams, the fulfillment of every longing, the ideal made flesh. A wanderer in an alien land, homesick, hungry, for whom, after weary days, a queen descends from her throne, speaking his language, supplying his unvoiced wants, might feel something of the adoring gratitude that possessed Louise. She rejoiced in Claire as a vault-bred flower in sunlight. On all human beings, child or adult, emotional adventure entails, sooner or later, physical exhaustion. The deeper, the more novel the experience, the greater the drain on the bodily strength. To Louise, involved in the first passionate experience of her short life, in an affection as violent and undisciplined as a child's must be, an affection in itself completely occupying her mind and exhausting her energies, the amount of work made necessary by the position to which Claire and her own ambition had assigned her was more of a burden than either realized. Only Alwyn, sympathetic coach, for Louise had two years back work to condense and assimilate, guessed how great were the efforts the child was making. Claire, who always affected unconsciousness of her own effect on the ambitions of the children, had persuaded herself that Louise was entirely in her right place, and Louise herself was too young and too feverishly happy to consider the occasional headaches, fits of lassitude, and nights cinematographed with dreams as anything but irritating pebbles in her path to success and Claire. The weeks in her new class had been spread with happiness, a happiness that had grown like Elijah's cloud, till, on the day of the Browning lesson, as she listened to the beloved voice making music of her halting sentences, to the words of praise, of affection even, that followed, it stretched from horizon to horizon. As she sat in the deserted classroom, her neat packet of sandwiches untasted in the satchel at her elbow, she relived that golden hour dwelling on its incidents as a miser counts money. There was the stormy beginning, Agatha's mockery, her own raging helplessness, Claire's entrance, the exquisite thrill she had felt at her touch that was not only gratitude for championship. Never before had Claire been so near to her, so gentle, so protecting. And afterwards, facing Louise at the foot of the table, how beautiful she had been. Yet some of the girls could not see it. They were fools. Her head had been framed in the small square window, so darkened and cobwebbed by crimson vines that only the merest blur of white clouds and blue hills was visible. She had worn a gown of duller blue that lay in stiff folds. The bowl of Christmas roses that mirrored themselves on the dark, polished table had hidden the papers in the smeared inkpot. Suddenly, Louise remembered some austere Dutch Madonnas over whom delightful but erratic Miss Duran had lingered on their last visit to a picture gallery. 
She called them beautiful. Louise, with fascinated eyes sidling past a wallful of riotous rubens to fix on the soap and gentian of a sesaferato, had wondered if Mr. Ann were trying to be funny. She remembered, too, how some of the younger girls, comparing favorites, had called Miss Hartle ugly. She had raged loyally, yet, secretly, all but agreed. With her child's love of pink-and-white prettiness, she had had no eyes for Claire's irregular features. But today something in Claire's pose had recalled the Dutch pictures, and in a flash she had understood, and wondered at her blindness. Miss Duran was right. The drawn, gray faces and rigid outlines had beauty, had charm, the charm of her stern smile. The saints were hedged with lilies, and she, too, had had white flowers before her that filled the air with the smell of the marvelous Roman church at Westminster. The painted ladies were Madonnas, mothers, and Miss Hartle, too, had worn for a moment their protective look, half fierce, half tender. Why was it? What has made her so kind? Not only today, but always? The girls feared her, some of them. Those that she did not like talked of her temper and her tongue. Rose Levy hated her. Even Agatha and Marion, and all of them, were a little frightened, though they adored. Louise was never frightened. How could one be frightened of one so kind and wonderful? She could say what she liked to Miss Hartle, and be sure that she would understand. It was like being in the attic, talking aloud. Mother would have been like that, if it could be. Louise, her chin in her double fists, launched out upon her sea of make-believe. If it could be, if it were possible, that mother, not mamma, cheery, obtuse mamma of nursery and parlor, but mother, the shadow of the attic, had come back, all things are possible to him that believeth, and Mr. Chesterton had said there was no real reason why tulips should not grow on oaks. Heaps of people, all India, believed in reincarnation, and there was the gateless barrier and the dead leman, for proof, might it not be? The idea was intoxicating. She did not actually believe in it, but she played with it, wistfully, letting her imagination run riot. She wove fantastic variations on the themes. Why not? Perhaps. Who knows? She was but thirteen and very lonely. She was in far too exalted a mood to have an appetite for her sandwiches, or time for the books beside her. She was due for extra work with Alwyn at three, and the intervening hours should have been used for preparation. Wasting her time at sitting up at night, as Louise was well aware, and a tussle with Mrs. Denny concerned for the waste of gas. But for all that, she would not and could not rouse herself from the trance of pleasure that was upon her. Her mind was contemplating Clare as a mystic contemplates his divinity. Wrapped in an ecstasy of adoration, oblivious alike of place and time. She did not hear the luncheon gong, or the gong for afternoon school, or a door opening and shutting behind her. Yet it did not startle her when, turning dreamily to tap on her shoulder, she found herself facing Miss Hartle herself. Miss Hartle should have left the school before lunch, she knew, but it was all in order. What could surprise one on this miraculous day? She did not even rise, as etiquette demanded but she smiled up at Claire with an expression of welcoming delight that disarmed comment. 
Claire, too, could ignore conventions. She was merely touched and amused by the child's expression. Well, Louise, very busy? Louise glanced vaguely at her books. Yes, I ought to be, I mean. I don't believe I've touched anything. I was thinking... Two hours on end? Do you know the time? I heard Mr. Wren clamoring for you just now. Claire looked mischievous. She could forgive forgetfulness of other people's classes. Louise was serene. I'm sorry. I'm very sorry. I'd forgotten. I must go. But she made no movement. She sat looking at Miss Hartle as if nothing else existed for her. The intent, fearless adoration in her eyes was very pleasant to Claire. Novel, too, after the more sophisticated glances of the older girls. With an odd little impulse of motherliness, she picked up Louise's books, stacked them neatly, and fitted them into the satchel. Louise watched her. Miss Hartle buckled the strap and handed her the bundle. There you are, Louise. Run along, my child. I'm afraid you'll get a scolding. She stooped to her, bright-eyed, laughing. And what were you thinking of, Louise, for two long hours? You, said Louise simply. A touch of color stole into Claire's thin cheeks. She took the small face between her hands and kissed it lightly. Silly child, said Miss Hartle. End of chapter 6 Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona Regiment of Women by Clemence Dane, Chapter 6